We're looking at that passage, and uh, my title is Three Groans. There are three groans mentioned in that particular passage. Now, uh, occasionally, if I kneel, let me uh, click this off again. Occasionally, if I kneel down or cutty down with something, say Welsh, I can hardly get back up without something solid to hold on to. And even if I can get back up, it's hardly ever without a groan. We all know what a groan is. And tonight there are three groans in those verses that uh, I read in Romans chapter 8. Now, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Warfield, was a, still is a very well-known theologian in Christian circles. He was on honeymoon with his wife, Annie, and uh, she was struck by lightning. She was never able to walk again. And for the next 39 years, he nursed her and hardly ever left her for more than two hours at a time, even though he was a very busy man and he was a principal of the theological seminary in uh, Princeton. So, you know, you could, you know, if anybody had a, a good reason to groan, then I'm sure that both those did on honeymoon and she comes back paralyzed. Now, the three groans, one is in uh, verse 22, creation groans. The next one is in the following verse, we groan, and then in verse 26, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, groans. Now, I looked at some dictionaries to find out what a definition of groaning is. I had a rough idea, as we all have. Uh, and basically, it's um, a kind of long, deep, inarticulate sound expressing pain or despair or pleasure or disapproval or frustration. I think that's pretty fair, pretty um, all-encompassing that. So I just want to look at the, at the three of them in the order they appear in the passage that was read. So the first one is the creation groans, creation groans. Now, we do say things in English. We say things like, uh, I've got a frog in my throat or she's driving me up the wall. We don't actually mean that she is driving me up the wall. and We don't actually mean there is a, actually a frog inside my mouth, but we understand what that represents. In the same way, you know, creation doesn't groan in the same way that, that we would groan. Nevertheless, the Bible's clear that it does groan. Now, the brilliant and godly uh, 18th century preacher in North America, Jonathan Edwards, wrote extensively on all sorts of things. And one of the questions he asked and then answered was, what do sleeping rocks dream of? The answer was, they don't dream of anything. They can't. But even though that is true, you know, somebody was telling me just on Friday, I think it was, that uh, they uh, they watched the, the David Attenborough thing, I think it's David Attenborough, The Green Planet, and uh, the explanation was how trees kind of communicate with each other uh, in some sort of way. Not that they, they don't groan in the sense that you find a, a circle of oak trees sitting down, shaking their heads and sighing, but they groan in a sense. So first of all, creation groans. Verse 18, our present sufferings. The Bible is honest and upfront. We suffer. The world is a place of suffering. But our present sufferings are not to be compared, not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed. But we're not there yet. And so we groan and creation groans because creation is longing, if you like, for the redemption of the, unit, the, the planet, 
and our redemption, the redemption of the children of God. So when creation groans, every lightning strike, every earthquake, every tsunami is a, a reminder that creation groans. Well, why does creation groan? Because it's all gone wrong. It's all gone pear-shaped. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve deliberately chose to disobey God, they fell, that's the language we use, the fall of man in Adam and Eve. When they fell, all of creation was dragged down with them. And it affected you, it affected me, but it affected everything from acorns to zebra and everywhere in between. Nothing now is as it should be. And so creation groans. Now, even atheists admit that something's gone wrong. Even atheists can see that the world is not a safe place. And even atheists admit that nobody goes to Niagara Falls or the Great, the, the Grand Canyon. Nobody goes there and says, aren't I great? No, they go there and they are wowed. They are awed. They say, wow, look at that, or words to that effect. And as amazing, I, I dare say, I've never been to either of those places, but as amazing as those places are, those wonders of the world are, they do not compare with how it once was. The Garden of Eden was magnificent, beautiful on a level we cannot imagine. But the Lord God Almighty, who created it all good, he hasn't forgotten how beautiful, how wonderful creation was. And so creation groans. I remember uh, a sixth form uh, kind of... Um, seminar really in North Wales and a sixth former, a lady, young, young girl, 18 year old, uh, blurting out. She was red in the face, obviously very passionate. You Christians don't care about the planet, she said. You're polluting it and so on and on and on she went. And in the end, I interrupted and said, can I just ask you, you care, don't you? I do care, she said, I do care. And I just asked the members, asking her, can I ask you, why do you care? She couldn't think of a single reason why. She just knew she did care. But of course, we should care because God cares about his planet. The creation groans, expressing in a sense, an inarticulate way, that God cares about what's gone wrong with his creation. I remember when I was a kid watching an Agatha Christie and uh, the murderer, whatever it was, uh, or the person who'd done harm anyway, had. Uh, caught uh, German measles and had deliberately visited somebody they didn't like who was, was expecting a child, knowing that the rubella, the German measles, would almost certainly cause problems. Now, now that's what sin does, isn't it? It contaminates. Nothing is as it ought to be. And that's why Jesus could say, when remember the, the ruler said to his disciples, who were just cheering Hosanna, look, Jesus, tell your disciples to calm down, tell them to button it, will you? Tell them to shut up, will you? And Jesus said, no, if I tell them to be quiet, the very stones will cry out. Well, was Jesus really expecting the stones to actually shout words? I don't think so, but he's talking about this groaning. And one day, now Greta Thunberg and people like her and the Eden Project and Woodstock in the 60s, let's get back to the garden. Well, we can't. We can't. One day, Almighty God will restore creation. One day, very, very soon, the planet will be perfect 
again, but it's not now. And we can't do anything now to make it perfect because we live in the planet. And it's our sin in the first place that has caused the whole creation to collapse and groan. The second one then, in the next verse, we groan. Warfield's sad story of on honeymoon, I would be. Both go there very healthy and then uh, there's a lightning strike and his wife is never the same again. That's not an isolated story, is it? There's tears every day on planet Earth. We grow. Christians grow. Non-Christians grow. Somebody uh, I listened to last week said that uh, they had done research and one particular year, I can't remember which year it was, quite recent, they, uh, they reckoned 160,000 people had been martyred for Christ that year. It's an awful lot of people. That's a lot of pain. That's a lot of suffering, isn't it? We grow. I remember when I was converted in the August, very nervous about going back to work to tell people that I've become a Christian. This atheist have now become a Christian and so on. Very nervous. How, how could I tell people? But I had no idea how hostile the environment would be. I had no idea how much ridicule and opposition and betrayal was ahead of me. I had absolutely no idea how much pain and suffering there would be. The, the loneliness I felt, the isolation. And so I bought a huge poster and put it up in a physics lab. I had lots of posters you know, about electricity and about Newton and about, you know, different people. But I bought this huge poster that it dwarfed all year. That's massive poster of 2 Corinthians 4 that had these verses on it. We are hard pressed. On every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. And so he went on. It was a tremendous help to me in the tough times. I would look again at those words and plead with God that he would help me because this was the experience of every Christian. Hard pressed, but we're, we're not crushed. We're not defeated. I realized this was the normal Christian life. There was pain. There was suffering. It was hard. And, you know, the apostle is, is reminding people there in that passage that the normal Christian life is not just death to life that Jesus died that we might live, but that is every ministry. You, you're dying to yourself. Sometimes you're, you're really hurt by the people you're trying to help, but you're doing it all that they might live. We die daily, the apostle Paul said, wasn't it? We, yes, that's the way Jesus went to the cross, that he died that we might live. But also, that is the Christian ministry. That is Christian witness. That's what it's like. We die to ourselves so that others might live. The Christian life is a sacrificial life. It is. The book on Philippians years ago, and I can't remember the author's name, but Jim Packer wrote the foreword to the book, and he said about the author, you know, the message that the author was preaching, these were his sermons he put in the book, it was unpopular. The people wanted something lighter, something more pleasant, something nicer. But he said, but the author was not aiming at being popular with the congregation. He was aiming at something higher. In this world, Jesus said, you will have, not maybe, not perhaps, in this world, you will have tribulation. And so often we groan. Maybe it's just a sigh. Anne mentioned her conversion last Wednesday when she was a kid and said, you know, very few words. She, 
she subsided or grown before God. And wonderfully, the Lord God Almighty interprets our groans and our sighs because he knows me. He knows me. He knows you. Now, that is terrifying, but it's also tremendous isn't it? that he knows us. Thirdly, and lastly, the Holy Spirit groans. There are times when we just don't know what to say or pray. We just don't know. We just cry out to God or we just sigh. We just say, oh, Lord, in the last song, you know, uh, uh, oh, God, reveal your glory. Oh, God, reveal your glory. There's a, a fellow, Paul Miller. He wrote a book some years ago, which I've never read, but I've re read about this book, if you know what I mean. And he'd done extensive research with people like us, church members, Christians, whatever. And uh, his conclusions were, unfortunately, very disappointing. I'm not saying he didn't do a good job. I think he did a very good job. But his conclusions were that 90%, 9 out of every 10 evangelical Christians had no meaningful relationship with God. They had no real meaningful prayer life. They had no real meaningful quiet time. Now, that is shocking if that's true. I think probably he was right. Again, I remember a godly old fellow, Dick Lucas, saying, most Christians don't get anything out of their quiet time. And initially when he said it, I thought, no, I'm not happy with that. That's not right. But the more I spoke to other Christians, the more I started to think, he probably knows better than I do. And so Dick Lucas and that fellow who wrote the book would, would agree in really that most Christians don't really have a relationship, a living relationship through the word and through prayer. I remember a friend of mine saying uh, on a, in a previous church on a Wednesday, people would come and some people would, would pray. And I remember my friend saying, the thing is, for some of these people, this is their one prayer of the week. They come on a Wednesday and, you know, they pray out loud because if they don't pray, people would notice that they haven't prayed. And he was suggesting, I think for some of them, this is their one prayer of the week. Well, in which case, both Dick Lucas and their author are right, aren't they? There's a book years ago, E.M. Bounds. He went to a church service and the pastor was uh, in the pulpit. It was the pulpit prayer, if you like, the longer prayer. And this is what Bounds said. In the pastor's long prayer, there was a list of doctrines God already knew. There was a subtle news report to the congregation. There were some sly digs at certain church members. Then it ended. Actually, there was no prayer at all. I remember reading and thinking, that is a devastating assessment, if that's true. If that's true. Now, what Ian Bounds was saying, of course, was the spirit is in us, for us. There is no need for that. We are now to, as Bunyan said, to live on God. We live on, live upon God. You know, we talk about reconciliation, talk about relationship, but Bounds was saying, obviously that man was just talking, just spoken words maybe to impress the congregation, I don't know. But the point is that the spirit groans, why? He intercedes for us. He groans on our behalf. Sometimes we don't know what to pray, he says, or pray for him. 
but he intercedes, he groans. So he intercedes for us on earth, the spirit. We've got the son of God at the right hand of the father interceding in heaven. We had covered all the bases, if you like. We are totally covered. He is for us. And therefore, again, uh, I think it was Tozer who said, we are to declare war on pretense. Stop pretending. Admit your weakness. Stop pretending. Rely on the Holy Spirit. If you don't know what to pray, then tell God you don't know what to pray. Or if there's something you just can't put into words, then just groan before God. You don't have to make a noise. They can be silent groans, can't they? Silent sighs, if you like. You know, admit your weakness. Uh, I think I've read loads of books on improving your prayer life and stuff like that. The best thing ever I read, the most helpful thing I never forgot was Halsby. Halsby's book, it's a skinny little book on prayer, but this one thing particularly, there were a few other things as well, but this one thing, he said, if you're always in need, if you always see that you're in need, you'll pray. I just thought that is it, isn't it? When people say, well, I can't think of what to pray for. Well, you obviously don't see that you're in need then. Because when you're in need, you will cry out. Everybody cries out in need. Even atheists cry out to God sometimes when they're in a, in a corner. And I just thought, that is the key, isn't it? If you're honest with yourself and you see your weakness, you are always in need. You're always in need. Uh, I met a, a lovely Christian I know some years ago, and he introduced me to his mate, who I never met. And we sat down and I said to this guy, how old are you then? 52, he said. He said, right, tell me now, what's your biggest problem as a 52-year-old Christian? And he sat back and he said, I can't think of any problems, really. I just thought, how, how not then? How is that? Because we groan. We look around. We look at ourselves. We look at our world. We look at the church. Surely we groan. A guy wrote a book. He's an eminent theologian, professor, I believe. He wrote a book and honestly he said this. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I wonder about the Holy Spirit. Honest, very honest, but desperately disappointing, isn't it? Desperately disappointing. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I wonder about the Holy Spirit. He, again, there's a lack of relationship there. We're back to nine out of ten, ninety percent, maybe no meaningful relationship with the Lord. Now, having a meaningful prayer life does not necessarily mean long prayers. It might mean, but it doesn't necessarily. But it does mean praying a lot, praying often, praying about it. It becoming a way of life, a habit, if you like. Bunyan again, I mentioned earlier. To live upon God who is invisible. What a tremendous thing. He's a fellow who mended pots and pans. You know, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. This earthly tent, he calls him, you know, they body a tent. This, you know, we, lo we long, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. We're in a tent. You know what a tent is. You, you fold it up. Or if it's glass to me, they just leave them behind and walk away. They don't want to tend to me. It's not good. It's not worth having. You know, and here's Paul saying, you know, it's like a tent at the moment. But one day, you know, we so we long to be clothed, he says. And God has made us, he says in the same passage, for that very purpose. And has given us 
his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. So if we believe in God the Father and God the Son, or we wonder about the Holy Spirit, something is desperately, seriously wrong. Psalm 73, I read this week, my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. So when I'm at my wit's end and my heart is failing, I turn to him. He is the strength of my heart. But how do you, do what Bunyan said, live upon God? You know, can you imagine, can you imagine if every positive outcome you had during a particular day, you praised God straight away. Imagine you did that. And imagine every near miss in the car, you thanked God that it was a near miss. And remember, imagine every time you remembered something really important, your, your knee-jerk reaction was to praise God, to thank God. Imagine if he was such a reality in your life that you communed with him, communed with him on a regular basis throughout the day. You say, oh, I'm too busy for that. No, but, you know, like bullet prayers. Thank you, Lord, that that went right. Thank you that I managed to remember that. Imagine if you weren't one of the 90% who haven't got a meaningful relationship. Now, if you're not one of those 90%, now, well, praise God for that right now, that it's not you. You know, Spurgeon said he didn't pray for very long ever. But there was rarely 10 minutes went through the day without him praying. You know, if somebody told, said something funny, you know, and he'd laugh, he'd say, thank you, Lord, for the gift of humor. You know, it became a way of life. You know, I met a teacher once, and uh, he said he would fire up a bullet prayer as the kids came in, secondary school, RE teacher he was. He fired up a bullet prayer as they were going out and the next bunch of teenagers were coming in. Now, I know he can say, well, that can be legalistic. Yeah, I know that. But it could also be a great habit, a great habit, a great way of life, couldn't it? You know, I remember there was a book, a little booklet I bought as a young Christian, and he said, imagine the old tape recorders, you know, the, the real-to-real things? Well, they were still around then. And he said, you know, you have all this rubbish that's recorded on, on a tape recorder. And when you're converted, all that is erased. The Lord comes. And in one fell swoop, he wipes it all away. You're clean. But now, the the fellow was saying in the book, what you're going to do now is record better stuff, good stuff, godly stuff, God-honoring stuff on the tape. You tape over now. You don't just have a a blank tape. You you start a new life. Now, you live a new life. You form, you get rid of old habits because you form new ones. And I thought, and that is just, that's it, isn't it? That is it. That is the Christian life. We, and in the new habits, you start to look to him. The spirit groans within you, prompting you. Because he longs to fill your life. He longs to fill your life. But what do you want right now? You want him to fill your life. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So creation groans. We groan. It's a battle. It's a battle, isn't it? A a famous admiral once said, before the battle, you decide what is your objective, what is your final objective, and you never let that out of your sight. 
that you never lose sight of that final objective. Well, you know, let's be honest, too many of us, we're aimless. We haven't got a final objective. It seems we're half-hearted. But you know, your quiet done doesn't have to be a drudge. We were talking to a bunch of guys years ago uh, who said, oh, it's very hard to read your Bible. Is it, is it hard to talk to your wife? Well, no. Well, why is it hard to talk to God? Why is it hard to have a quiet time? You know, a quiet time doesn't have to be a drudge. It doesn't have to be a, a mere duty. It can be. It could be a delight, a way of life. Now, the only way that's going to be true is if you hate what you are inside by nature, hate your, the self-sins, and you love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way forward. Because you and I were created for much, much better than this. That's why creation groans, because creation knows it was once wonderful, and we were created wonderful and perfect. You know, again, I know I've said, used this as an illustration before. When I started going out with Anne, never once did my parents have to say to me, look, now it's about time you visited that girl. You couldn't keep me away. I wanted to visit her. It wasn't a chore. Why, for many Christians, apparently, is it a chore to read the Bible and talk to God? Why is it such a, a drudge, a chore? So creation groans, we groan, the Spirit of God groans. He's on our side. He's for us. He wants the best for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? All I'm trying to do is to, to point you to him, to live upon him. May it be so. Amen. We'll sing our last song.